I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. Delighted to welcome to our broadcast today, Gorik Ng. He is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Your Career Off Right. Gorik is a career advisor and tutor at Harvard College, specializing in coaching first-generation low-income students. It is a distinct honor and pleasure to welcome you, Gorik. Alexander, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. You've written a tremendously useful book for our listeners and viewers. What has been the most significant takeaway since you published the book, which was only some weeks ago, when you've had readers approach you or interviewers probe your insights and say, this is phenomenally interesting because I didn't realize it was going to resonate in this way. Was there, was there a certain of your book's findings or counsel to especially those first-generation students that you, you saw was making a profound impact that you might not have realized when you were writing it would have that kind of resonance? Pleasantly surprised by how many people have read my book and said, wow, this is not just for new grads. This is for everybody. This is for professionals who are many decades into their careers. And moreover, this is just as applicable to managers and CEOs who want to build more productive and inclusive work cultures. And it brought me back to when I was first coming up with a subtitle of the book, where I was toying around with to what extent I wanted to write a book that was catered towards new grads, which is the current subtitle of Secrets to Starting Your Career Off Right, versus casting a wider net and saying, these are the secrets of top performers. And what I've been excited to see is people really embracing the subtitle that I never used, but that I was thinking about the entire time. I think they are they are hoping your book will deliver in terms of the counsel you're giving to job seekers and also any reform within American or international industry that can make job hunting and resume building more compatible with the realities of day-to-day life. I'd say this has manifested itself in two ways. One is in people realizing that so much of what separates top performers at work, those who get in and get ahead, from mediocre performers, those who end up stumbling and often not knowing why, is a matter of tacit knowledge, which is a fancy way of saying behaviors and norms and talking points and mindsets that are so ingrained within our daily lives that it almost becomes like common sense. And There's so much that school doesn't teach about how to be a functioning adult, how to be a successful professional in the workplace that we acquire through observation, that we learn by looking left, looking right, speaking with mentors, and having that informal education delivered over the dinner table from our parents. So there, I'll give you an example here where 
there's this unspoken rule or expectation that when you encounter a problem in the workplace, you won't just bring that to your manager. Of course, that's better than not bringing it to your manager. But high performers do more than that. They'll go to their manager with not just the problem, but they'll go to their manager with a proposal. And they'll say, Alexander, I noticed this problem. I diagnosed the issue and I came across this root cause. We've got options A, B, and C on how to go forward. I propose option B for these reasons. What do you think? And that's something that as listeners are reflecting upon their coworkers and the people they manage and folks they may have observed in the workplace, it's interesting to see how these top performers really do talk in this way versus the perceived mediocre performers who may just show up with a problem and not have anything to offer more than that. So that's the first piece is just realizing, wow, what's common sense may not actually be common sense. It's actually acquired. It's, it goes from something we don't know we don't know to something that we consider common sense and not worth talking about, even though it very much is worth talking about. And then the second piece is around what it takes to build productive and inclusive teams. When I was writing this book, I was careful and still have mixed feelings about the self-help nature of the framing of my book, where I'm trying to help the individual more successfully navigate the workplace. So as I think about the framing of my book, it's it reads as if it were a conversation with a near peer. However, what I've appreciated over the course of writing this book, and I'm thrilled to be hearing in the feedback, is that, wow, it's not just about self-help. We all need to help. That creating a more productive work environment isn't incumbent upon just the individual. Certainly, the, the individual has a role to play, but managers have a role to play. That just because someone isn't speaking up in a meeting doesn't mean they don't have anything to say. It may be that they are in the presence of louder talking, longer rambling, higher ranking coworkers that are crowding out some of these other ideas. So I'm thrilled to see that managers are looking in the mirror and asking themselves, wow, yes, we need to be empowering the individual, but there's also stuff that we as leaders need to be doing. And to which it has not been respected in you know, prestigious companies and industry that there is a work philosophy that you will make a verbal contribution in a discussion when you have something truly original or ingenious to say, but you will not speak to hear your own voice. How much of that factors into your assessment of, of these companies and how their hiring pra- and evaluation practices are changing, if at all. As I think about American corporate culture, there's very much a bias that favors extroverts, favors the loud talkers, the long ramblers, the, <laughs> the folks who are able to show up with a greater sense of confidence. And I often get questions from fellow introverts who will tell me, well, is there any room for someone like me to navigate the workplace to be successful? And this is where we need to be thinking about, well, how do we better structure meetings so that we aren't just 
hearing the same people talk, but we're actually surfacing the most salient ideas. And when I think about the, the, when I think about how companies often will hire people, it's going to be very similar where applying for a job online will only get you so far. It'll get you as far as adding your resume onto a big pile that may or may not actually get looked at. The folks who will often be most successful in the job search are those who have number one relationships, connections, maybe familial, maybe friend-wise, who can put in a good word for them. That certainly takes a certain level of extroversion, proactivity, and social capital. But what all this does is it certainly favors those who are the most outgoing and you're already self-selecting for those who are likely to thrive in such environments. And then the workplace certainly becomes even more on level when you have someone who may be less inclined to speak up, but not because they don't have any good ideas, but because they are in the presence of folks who may be dominating the discussion. So there's very much this bias and it doesn't help perhaps that those who get promoted also perhaps exhibit these qualities best. (laughs) And so there's almost this expectation then of, well, that's how I got promoted. So that's how everyone ought to be promoted. So um, there's a lot of introspection certainly that's required in this, in this topic. Is there a way to produce a resume and engage in an interview that provides a template for extroversion, if you will. Um, And would you advise folks who are on the cusp of being hired from the outset of their exchange with their new employer, say, look, you, you hired me on the basis of these qualifications and I want to do this job for you and advance your further, your goals, your organization or your division's goals, but to set those ground rules from the outset of the hiring process to understand, you know, who is this person and and be a little bit more open about that process than the kind of rigidity um, that would be frowned upon to have that kind of open and candid discourse at the beginning of a work relationship. Yeah, and I think it perhaps is time to question the format of a resume to begin with, where when I think about a resume, it's nothing more than a collection of verbs, nouns, and numbers laid out in bullet point form that is nothing more than a proxy for what someone is able to do. And I, and already this separates those who know some of these unspoken rules from those who do not know these unspoken rules. So there's this unspoken rule in the resume that you won't just chronicle the tasks you've completed, but that you'll frame your prior experiences in terms of what you've contributed or what you've accomplished. So there's a difference, for example, between saying, I'll, I'll use uh, a student example here of organized events two words, (laughs) which I've seen before in a resume and, and an alternate bullet point, which is elected by a student body of 3000 to lead a team of five, to manage a budget of 50,000 and organize six events, increasing attendance by 20%. Totally just made that up. But what I did there was inject 
substantive verbs, substantive nouns, and substantive numbers to be able to quantify and clearly articulate what you've done, which is very different from saying organized events. And when I think about the folks who know the unspoken rules, well, those are ultimately going to be the people who end up getting ahead, not because they've actually done more, but because they were better able to articulate what they've done. And when I think about hiring practices more broadly, I mean, there have been studies that have shown that women, for example, may be more inclined to downplay their accomplishments or maybe not upsell their accomplishments in the same way that men may. And so when we see, when we have that as the baseline, you end up having a further disparity once you start incorporating applicant tracking systems, for example, algorithms that will scan one's resume and pull out bullet points. Well, how level of playing field do we have if you have bad inputs, you're destined to have undesirable outputs. And so when I advise even students at Harvard College as uh, an advisor to first-generation low-income college students, I see a big disparity between those who are able to write these bullet points and those who don't, which then raises the question of, well, why are we playing this game of trying to find the sexiest verbs, sexiest nouns, and sexiest numbers? Can we get closer to what someone is actually capable of doing? And there we start talking about, are there work portfolios that we could start putting together to show what you've actually done? You know, dare I say, I think there isn't recognition across the American university and workforce that the writing quality in this country, not just basic literacy about American government, both editorial skills, basic literacy have, and, and knowledge of civic life, they have all plummeted over these last decades. I mean, this has been a consistent trend and you can graduate with a 4.0 GPA from a public high school and probably a private high school as well, um, at, at least within the United States and not learned how to write. And so there are demonstrable manifestations of those skills. Um, and, and I know that in your book, you argue for, you advocate for an, a reimagining of those portfolios. But just to get back to the, to the basic question here of rigidity in the hiring process and those sexy verbs you cite, <laughs> how much of that is, is being untangled because of decline of the humanities and the recognition we do need to interview people? Is there, is there kind of a counter-revolution now to the algorithmic biases and decision-making that is enabling more of the human and humane decision-making in the hiring process now? I'd certainly like to think that we'd be having that conversation, number one, and making progress on this, number two, where one potential step forward is in organizations tapping into traditionally underrepresented talent pools by partnering with nonprofits, for example, that serve first-generation low-income college students or the formerly incarcerated or those who may be coming from uh, a different racial background, socioeconomic background, racial background, um, and who may provide additional diversity to the workplace uh, in every sense of the word identity. And so I, I see more organizations certainly doing that. 
But then it becomes almost a game of whack-a-mole where if this Wall Street firm is partnering with this diversity nonprofit to tap this talent pool, yes, that's a step in the right direction. However, then there's a question of, well, how good of a job is that nonprofit at sourcing candidates and what it's what is its admissions process? So it it becomes this this whack-a-mole, as I said, of solving one problem, but then another challenge emerging. I think what I hear you saying also is that there aren't really best practices that have been adopted, even within industry uh, or sectors, uh, when it comes to, I referred earlier to the possibility of an interview conversation or an offer letter being extended, and then a candid conversation about not just job description and salary, but personality and getting accustomed to working with someone and prepared for that relationship. But to what extent are you advocating for a more holistic or systemic standardization of of these processes um, when it comes to um, the hiring and the evaluation? I would say I am. And it's in the form of moving beyond proxies and getting closer to what someone is actually able to do. And so if you are, for example, trying to hire someone who's a bookkeeper or a financial analyst or a salesperson, rather than use proxies in the form of which educational institution you went to, what verbs, nouns, and numbers you have on your resume, and who you happen to know in the organization, all of which are proxies for the three C's of what I call competence, commitment, and compatibility, rather than relying on these proxies, can we get closer to being able to actually observe how this person would, would actually perform? And in, in my world, in the context of this book, part of my motivation for writing this book came from this realization that organizations, managers, leaders will often say a certain phrase, which is the phrase of it's not your book smarts, but it's your street smarts. Or it's not about your technical skills, it's about your soft skills. When I started looking into the literature and just the public discourse around 21st century skills, soft skills, non-cognitive skills, non-technical skills, human skills, power skills, I've heard a bunch of synonyms on this topic. Employers, leaders love to be able to say that, yes, this is what we value, but what it doesn't seem like anyone's been able to do is deconstruct what these soft skills are. We've gotten only as far as being able to say that tech, that technical skills will only get you so far. We've only gotten so far as being able to say that teamwork, communication, problem solving, leadership, these are all skills that matter. What my aspiration is with this book is to be able to unpack what these skills look like and sound like. So coming back to the idea of going to your manager with proposals and solutions instead of just problems, that gets rolled up into something like communication or teamwork or proactivity or leadership. And my view on this topic is that so long as we're at the 30,000 foot level and talking about soft skills in this abstract nebulous way, we're not going to be able to articulate what we're looking for. And when we can't articulate what we're looking for, we most certainly can't teach it. And when we can't teach it, we're going to be relying on proxies such as 
oh, if you worked at this place, you must be good enough for this place. And therefore you must be good enough for us. Or you went to this educational institution, you must be good enough for us. Can we get to a point where we're actually able to deconstruct what we're really looking for so that we can rely less on these proxies? That's what I hope to, to, to be able to do. As a young man, even as a child, you were working on this with your mom. Uh, this is deeply personal for you because you actually helped her construct a resume. And so you, you have a long history of grappling with inequity in the hiring process. And I just wonder through that lens, when you hear me ask you about standardization we we know that questions of equity are you know largely unanswered in the workplace even though you know there has been some discussion of hiring and pay equity in this country um you know fair wages for for fair work um and acknowledging the worth of of women and men equally of immigrants and non-immigrants equally but we know in real life both in terms of the companies that hire, hire out of college or, you know, have certain requirements that it is inequitable. If you're a woman, if you're an immigrant, if, if you have made below a certain annual salary or per hour wage. So I just wanted to close discussing with you the inequities of the system and how you, how your outlook has evolved from when you helped your mom with the resume from, an early age to the present with the release of, of this fantastic new book. How, how has your attitude evolved in assessing some of the fundamental inequities in the hiring and evaluation process and inequities in, in pay of these jobs? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that the problem has changed over time. I think my understanding of the issue has grown over time where what you're referring to is my experience as a 14-year-old writing my first resume, which ended up being not for me, but for my mom when she was laid off from her sewing machine factory job. And I mentioned this not because I was successful in this process, but actually because I was unsuccessful, where I was spending recesses learning to write resumes and cover letters, afternoons at the public library looking for jobs and applying blindly online to everything, and evenings coaching my mom all through trial and error. And we were unsuccessful in retrospect because I was applying all over the place. I wasn't being proactive in reaching out to these organizations. I was also applying to jobs that my mom wasn't qualified for and that her resume wasn't tailored to. And I was sending generic cover letters up against folks who were sending customized cover letters. So there were a whole bunch of unspoken rules that I had navigated. So, so it was no surprise that I was unsuccessful because I had violated every single one of them. What I now think a lot about, and in retrospect was actually the case for my mom as well, is that the labor market is a big chicken and egg problem where you need relevant experience to get relevant experience. And no one is willing to give a chance to someone who's unproven. In the case of my mom, she was a sewing machine operator, had spent her life in a specific job and her and for her switching from a sewing machine job to let's say a hospital job was going to be next to impossible because she was up against all these other candidates who probably could have done the job in the same 
because she was up against people who had done the job before. That's not to say she couldn't have done the job. It's to say that she just didn't, she just hadn't done it before. And as I think about the entry level job market, obviously a topic that I'm now super passionate about, I think about young people getting their first toehold onto the ladder of upward mobility. And I start thinking about how each and every one of us will inevitably navigate from never having worked before to having a job. And for many young people in this country and around the world, that toehold is in the form of a service job. However, there's this, because of this unspoken rule of you need a job to get a job or you need relevant experience to get relevant experience, starting off, let's say working in retail or as a server at a restaurant, as a barista at a a Starbucks, that helps pay the bills, that helps train you on valuable life skills. However, if you now all of a sudden want to switch from retail to a white collar job, let's say as a financial analyst, all of a sudden you're going to have that chicken and egg problem emerge again, where as I start thinking about how anyone overcomes this chicken and egg problem, it's by having someone give you a chance. It's by having an uncle say, hey, come shadow me for a summer or a sibling who can refer you off to a job or a peer or mentor at your college who's able to say, hey, let me, re- let me put in a good word for you. And so that's now all of a sudden a matter of social capital. And so when I start thinking about even the students that I advise at Harvard, there are students who get that toehold early on because they've had that social capital. And there are others who not only don't have the social capital, but had to spend their early careers working to pay the bills, not necessarily working to pad their resumes. And so my mom faced this at the age of, in her 50s and 60s. These young people are facing it at the age of 22, let's say. And so when I start thinking about companies such as Netflix, for example, that have a history of not hiring at the entry level, but instead hiring experienced hires, I start asking myself, wow, how does one get that toehold? And how do we make sure that more people have access to that toehold of being able to overcome this chicken and egg problem? And for a lot of young people, it's in the form of leadership development programs or professional services firms. And I start thinking, well, what is it about these entry-level jobs in the white-collar world that give people this this toehold? And when I speak to alumni of these programs, I start hearing that they learned a lot of soft skills. They learned how to manage up, manage their manager, manage clients, interact professionally, send professional emails, all of this stuff that no one teaches. And I start asking myself, wow, well, there are a certain select few number of companies that exist out there that offer this training, whether formally or informally in the form of allowing young people to be able to observe adults at work. And I start thinking, well, what if we could bottle that experience up and democratize it to the world so that those who may be working at small, medium-sized businesses can also acquire these skills just as someone working at a large company might. So I'm being maybe dreamy here, but I do think it's a a very realistic and achievable dream. Websites like Indeed and Idealist, ZipRecruiter, are they democratizing the process? Um, 
or are they having the opposite effect that they at least ostensibly want to create? And, and of course, these are the modern day versions of the monster.com. There, there has been for some years of the internet's existence, uh, websites that have collected listings of jobs according to zip code, according to industry, according to skill set. I would say that these platforms are leveling the playing field, but only to a certain degree. And what I mean by that is the likes of Indeed, LinkedIn, and these other job boards, what they're doing is they're surfacing job opportunities. And they're offering visibility to what's available in the labor market, which is which is a big step forward. It's sort of like Google curating the internet and allowing websites that would otherwise go undiscovered to be discovered via search engine. So that's a big step forward. Otherwise, we would have to go on to every company's careers page and dig through page after page after page to be able to find a specific job. Now we have a complete dashboard of what's available. However, there's this question of quality versus quantity, at least on the hiring manager side, where the minute you make something accessible is the minute you get flooded with resumes. And you see this with a lot of entry-level hiring job platforms as well, where I was actually an administrator to one of these at a university. And what I saw on the other side was you have a job posted, and then you have hundreds, sometimes even thousands of applicants. When you're a busy recruiter, busy hiring manager, you don't have time to read through every resume. And so what are you going to do? You might end up purchasing one of these applicant tracking systems that might help you curate the top 10 that might be worth your time as decided by the algorithm. And so what this has essentially done is it's democratized access, but in democratizing access, it's now raised the bar to everyone where it's not enough to simply apply online because everyone's applying online. You need to take that extra step to put yourself out there, to reach out cold to this individual and say, even if it's simply a matter of saying, Alexander just wants to let you know that I've applied to this position. I'm interested for this, for, for this and that reason. Would love to have a phone call with you if you have, if you have the chance. Even just sending that, that, that email can set you apart from someone who's just simply bl- applying uh, blind online. So it, it seems like a, a continuous whack-a-mole exercise of, yes, we solved one problem only to, to create another. Gork, I want to urge our listeners to check out your Wall Street Journal bestselling book on newly released, The Unspoken Rules, Secrets to Starting Your Career Off Right. Uh, your insights are helpful and I think will be illuminating across the demographic breakdown. Uh, and, and the fundamental analysis here, we may be on a loop and playing whack-a-mole but to be a go-getter is the name of the game. And uh, you have introduced us to some of the most salient areas in which you have to launch your career. Thank you for your insight and your story today, Gork. Alexander, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for your smart questions.